Jesus came to set you free. That's why he came. In fact, he never wavered on his mission. Jesus stayed on brand. Jesus's brand is freedom. And we know that by just looking at his ministry. And if we look at how he began his ministry in his very first sermon, he told us that he came so that you and I, so that we could experience freedom. In the gospel of Luke chapter four, starting in verse 16, it says this, he, he being Jesus, went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus, his first sermon, he said, I, I came so that we could be free. And the background uh, here for the passage Jesus read from Isaiah is the year of Jubilee. And this was a time um, for the people of Israel. Every seven years, they, uh, they had to let the, the land rest. Every seventh year, you had to not do any plowing or, or, or planting any crops. You just had to take a year off from farming. And then every seven sevens, so every 49th year, was declared the great Sabbath, the year of Jubilee, where not only was the land free from work, but those who had their land taken away from them because of debts um, on, on the 49th year, they were given their lands back. And if you were a slave and back then in the time of Israel it was more like an indentured servant. It wasn't like what we think of as American slavery. But if you were in that situation, if you were a slave on the 49th year, you gained your freedom. So right after the Day of Atonement, which was the day the sins of the people uh, were, were paid for by a sacrificial lamb, on that 49th year, a loud trumpet would sound and it would begin the year of Jubilee and it would declare the freedom of all those who have been held captive. Can you imagine what it would have been like to hear that trumpet sound? What a joyful sound that would have been to those who were in bondage. And Jesus, with his very first sermon, declares an even greater liberation. So the question for us is, do you feel free? Do you live free? Have you heard the trumpet? I had coffee with a buddy of mine uh, not too long ago, and, um, and he, he's over it. He, he's, uh, he said he's done. He's... he's um, He's completely over it. He's been following Jesus since he was a little kid and he knows the gospel and he knows that Jesus, you know, set him free and he believes in theory that it's all good news. But he told me he's just so tired of the struggle. He struggled since he was about 13 with all kinds of sexual promiscuity. And he says he's done just feeling bad. 
He's done feeling bad when he messes up. He's done feeling uh, shame and guilt and, and just and not being able to get better. He says he doesn't want to mess up, but he just keeps messing up. He wants to be free, but he says he doesn't think it will ever happen. Jesus said the truth will set you free. And then after that, he says, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So if Jesus has set you free, you're free. So what do you do when it doesn't feel like you're free? Well, let's let's look together at our passage in Galatians. We've been we've been going through this letter that Paul wrote, probably um, probably the earliest letter we have of Paul to the early church. Um, And right now we are in chapter five. So I'm going to start reading in the first verse um, and then I'm going to skip a few verses and go to verse 13. So starting in Galatians five, verse one, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit... We eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Skipping down to verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. This is God's word. So as we've been going through this letter of Paul's, to the church in Galatia. He's writing because he came to this area of of the world and he proclaimed the gospel to them. He told them that that there is total freedom, that there's total salvation simply by believing in Jesus Christ as God's son, that it's all him. But then some teachers came behind him and started adding to it. And they said, yeah, 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 Jesus, yes, but it's Jesus plus something. And in this case, it was living Jewish, being circumcised. So yes, Jesus saves you, but only if you change and become like us. Now, up to this point in the letter, Paul has done a pretty thorough job of showing us that adding anything to the gospel apart from Jesus, if it becomes Jesus plus something, um, that really messes stuff up. In fact, in chapter one, he says it makes it no gospel at all. But he's done such a good job that he knows that there's a question that's going to happen. If it's all Jesus then does it matter what I do? 
So here in chapter five, Paul begins to answer this question. And in fact, he'll spend the rest of the letter answering the question by telling us what we've been freed for, what we've been freed from and what we've been freed to. But the key still is we're free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And our freedom is connected to the spirit of God. I don't know if you noticed as I was reading it, how many times it talked about the spirit, walking by the spirit, being led by the spirit. Jesus told his disciples before his, before his death and resurrection in John chapter 14, he told them, he says, I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And Jesus looks at his disciples and, and he tells them, you know, it's really better that I go away. It's better that I not stay with you because once I go away, I will send this spirit, the spirit of God into your hearts. And then the apostle Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the spirit of God is, there is freedom. So the key is freedom. Freedom is Jesus's brand. And our freedom is connected to the spirit of God. So what does that freedom look like? Why even as followers of Jesus do we sometimes struggle with feeling free? Why does my buddy who loves Jesus, who's loved Jesus since he was a little boy, why does he want to quit? Because he doesn't feel free. Maybe it's best to start with what it doesn't look like and doesn't feel like. The spirit is never a spirit of fear. It's not a spirit that enslaves us. Again, going back to verse one of chapter five, do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Slaves live in constant fear. When I think of a spirit of fear, um, I think back to my life as a student. Um, I, was, I was always fearful. I was always fearful that I wouldn't get good grades. I wouldn't get good enough grades to get an AP in advanced classes. And if I didn't get in those classes, then my transcript wouldn't look good enough for colleges, which means I wouldn't get into a good college, which means I wouldn't get a good job, which means I wouldn't be able to provide for my family, which means one day I wouldn't be able to retire in New Smyrna Beach. And it was like all my life, I was so fearful that it wouldn't work out. And now that my kids are getting older, I've got a, a son who's in eighth grade and already went to the orientation about high school and they scared the spit out of me about all the things he needs to do to be able to get into college. I'm starting to feel that again. I don't know if you even saw in the news this week that uh, Aunt Becky from Full House just got arrested uh, for, for spending like a half a million dollars in bribes to get her daughters into USC. Cut it out, right? I mean, like that is, that is crazy, right? Good thing for us, though, uh, a, pair of, uh, a pair of bedazzled jorts and a, and a personalized cozy uh, will we'll get you into UF. So it's, it's, all, it's all good. Um, but that is being motivated by a spirit of fear. That's not how the spirit of God motivates us. If we have a sense that we're going to be punished, or even if we have a sense of FOMO, like we're going to miss out, that's not him. That's not the spirit leading us. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. The again implies something. It implies that before the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you are a slave and slaves live in constant fear. 
It implies that all, motiva all motivation apart from the motivation that comes from God is based on fear and is enslaving. So essentially, apart from Jesus, we can't be free. No one is free without Jesus. Every other philosophical system, every other religion, even irreligious people, when, when you ask someone, you know, who doesn't hold to any particular belief what they believe, most will at least answer, well, I believe in being a good person. And then if you follow that up and you say, well, why? Most will say, well, because you need to be a good person or else everything will break down. Society will fall apart. But do you hear that motivation? It's a motivation of fear. In other words, everybody else, every other religion, every other philosophy, every other motivation except the gospel Every motivation for obeying the golden rule to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, to obey the Ten Commandments, to follow the Eightfold Path, any spirit other than the Spirit of God that motivates us to live a good life is a spirit of fear to one degree or another. I better do this or I'll get fired. I, I, better, I, better, I better do better or I'll be punished. I better work harder or else things won't work out. That's not how the Spirit of God acts. Romans 8, 15 tells us the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you will live in fear again because the spirit sets you free. So if you're struggling with fear, if you're struggling with fear in your relationship with Jesus, that's not his spirit that's making you feel that way. Some of you are addicted. There's things in your life that you know are wrong and you're trying so hard to overcome those addictions. And maybe even when you try really hard, you, you, you fail even worse. Why is that? Are you operating out of a spirit of fear? If I don't change, God will reject me. Or some of us are real moral, but there's no joy in our life at all. Why is that? Are you operating out of a spirit of fear? I must keep doing good or God will reject me. You're moral, you're good, but you're joyless. You're not free. Religious, but unbelievably insecure and defensive and always having uh, to, to put everyone else down if they don't believe like you do. You're the older brother in the prodigal son story. That's me most of my life. It's living out of a spirit of fear. It's not out of the spirit of God. And so what does that, what does that freedom actually look like? Let's look again at, at verses 13 through 18. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free but do not use your freedom to indulge this flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. See, the Spirit of God actually leads us to obey. Now, some might say, all right, that's tricky. You know, that's not real freedom. How does that bring us freedom? If you put anything on me, even loving others, that means I can't follow the dreams of my heart. That means I'm not actually free. To be free means to follow my heart, to decide what's right for me. But the problem is our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? 
And if your heart is like my heart, it's a mess and it's radically confusing. My, my heart desires virtue, but it also is selfish. I'm radically both. So which heart wins? It's like Jekyll and Hyde. We're all like that. We're all kinds of contradictions. So let's say I have two things that I really want when I walk into a Wawa and I see the tasty cakes. I love tasty cakes. I love the way they taste as I'm eating tasty cakes. But I also want to live. I want to live long enough to see my children uh, get married. And my youngest is nine months old. So if you say true freedom is being free to follow your heart, which part? My heart wants to eat the tasty cake, but my heart also wants to live. They're both in my heart. See, the law of God is a picture of all that God had in mind when he thought us up. And it's not oppressive. Look at it. And he says it can all be summed up in one thing. Love your neighbor as yourself, which would mean have integrity, have purity, compassion, generosity, honesty. These are all things that you want, don't you? I want them. But I also sometimes like sin. I like to be completely selfish. Feels good. Sometimes it feels better, more satisfying than being pure and compassionate and generous. In the book, uh, Cool, How the Brain's Hidden Quest for Cool Drives Our Economy and Shapes Our World, the author makes the case that we have these three different drives for safety, for gratification, and for goals, and that they are always in competition for one another. That, that he uses this metaphor of a chariot race in which, in which he describes these, these drives in us as all trying to outmove, outmaneuver each other. And then he says, within us, there is no centralized command, no charioteer holding the reins and steering us on a steady course. Which one wins? The spirit of God does, though. What Paul is saying is the spirit of God grabs the reins and then writes the law of God in our hearts and strengthens those parts of us, those desires of the heart that will actually set us free. And at the same time, the spirit of God exposes those desires of the heart that enslave us. So I have two desires, eat tasty cakes and to live. Which of these two desires should I follow if I want to have true freedom? The spirit comes in and supports those desires that are the real ones, that are the true ones, that are, that are who I really am. The spirit of God shows me what God had in mind when he thought me up. And he doesn't do it out of a spirit of fear. So here's the rub. It's what Paul knew would happen after saying the gospel is, what, is not what you do for God, but what God has done for you through his son Jesus, that the gospel is all Jesus. Someone hears that and they say, okay, let me get this straight. You're saying, when I become a Christian, there's no condemnation for me. When I become a Christian, when I receive Christ, I am saved and accepted, not on the basis on what I do, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. And therefore, since I didn't earn my standing with God, I can't unearn it. It's all done by Jesus. I can't lose it. There is no condemnation for me, right? Yes. So if there's no condemnation or eternal damnation, why should I worry about living a good life? Why should I worry about obeying? But if when you lose your fear of rejection or punishment, you have lost all incentive to be moral, that means the only incentive you ever had to be moral was fear. 
And what Paul is telling us is that Jesus invites us into something totally different. A new way to live, a way that you and I can only live when we're empowered by the Spirit. So how does that change? Paul shows us in this letter the why behind our goodness, behind our obedience. That our obedience matters, our works matter, but the why behind them matters more. In fact, without the correct why, we can't be free. Do you ever feel alone? Do you ever carry around a sense of isolation that no one really knows you? And if they did, they would leave. You're free because you're his child. And he says to you through Deuteronomy 3.16, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Are you constantly worried? You don't have enough money or friends or security. You're free. Because you're his child and he says to you in Matthew 6, 25 and 26, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Do you feel the need to be successful, to be good? to perform well at all costs. You don't have to. You're free because you're his child and a son is loved when he's good for nothing. He says to you in Romans 5, 6, when you were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you feel the need to judge and condemn and compare with others? Do you, do you compare what you're offering to God against theirs? You don't have to. You're free because you're his child. And it says in Psalm 51, 17, a broken and contrite heart I will not despise. That's the offering that he wants. Do you find yourself constantly pointing out what's wrong in yourself and others? You don't have to. You're free because you're his child. And he says to you in Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely and admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. Do you constantly feel the need to boast, to point out your accomplishments for fear that others might overlook them? You don't have to. You're free. You're his child. And he says to you in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. See, are you living as a slave or a child? If your mindset, if you could answer yes to any of those, your mindset is still that of a slave. So what do you do? How do you change the why? How do you live free? Well, Paul says you go back to the gospel. In Galatians 5, verse 5, he says, For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Now, the word hope in the Bible is translated from a word that means certainty. Now, you and I, when we use the word hope, we usually say like, well, I hope this will work out or I hope things will turn around. Like it's, it's, it, it doesn't have a sense of certainty. It actually has a sense of uncertainty. But when you see the word hope in the Bible, it's a word that means certainty. It's like I'm anticipating for what I know will one day be fully realized and experienced. See, the gospel gives us hope that says, because of Jesus, I can be absolutely assured, 
and convicted in a way no other person can be of the glory and the beauty that's awaiting my future. Paul knew of this. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we only see a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. See, you and I right now, we only know a part of the righteousness we've been given in Christ. But one day we will see it fully because the righteousness we've received is what the reformer Martin Luther calls an alien righteousness. It's not ours. We didn't earn it. We didn't live it out. It's it's a righteousness that belonged to him. Jesus came and lived the perfect life. He was perfectly righteous in all his ways. He lived the life that you and I were designed to live without sin so that he could die the death we deserve. Why? So in exchange for our sin on the cross, he could impute, he could give us his righteousness. That's the righteousness that we are eagerly awaiting to see in its fullness. That is what we're hopeful for. Not because we're hoping that it'll work out, but because we know that we can't fully see it and experience now. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, to be our sin, so that through believing in him, you and I might become the righteousness of God. See, the gospel is all Jesus. Going back to Jesus' first sermon, if this doesn't, if this doesn't just blow your mind, it blew my mind. Um, if you go back and you look at Jesus' first sermon, he, he gives his first sermon out of the prophet Isaiah, and it's out of Isaiah 61. And if you go back and you read Isaiah 61, you will notice that Jesus stops in the middle of a sentence. Now, I skipped some verses in Galatians 5, and I know some of you are like, why did he skip those verses? Does he not want to talk about that? Like, he shouldn't take it out of context. Like, I know you're already like that, but Jesus is reading out of Isaiah 61, and he just stops in the middle of a sentence. There's more to the sentence. So Jesus ends by saying, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he stops. But the sentence in Isaiah 61 keeps going, and it ends by saying, and the day of vengeance of our God. See, Jesus doesn't read the last part because Jesus knew he came to take the vengeance of a holy God against sin on the cross so that all that's left is the Lord's favor. That's what it means to be completely free. You and I are free. There's no kicker. All that is left is the Lord's favor. There's no vengeance left. Jesus in his first sermon left that part out because he knew if you are in Christ, no matter what, God cannot get angry at you. He got as angry at you and your sin 2,000 years ago when Jesus hung on the cross. There's no anger left. There is no condemnation. Paul writes in Romans 8.1, Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, Paul knew how weak we were at grasping the gospel that like dogs we keep returning, uh, like dogs return to their own vomit. We keep falling back into the mindset of a slave. That that somehow we must justify Jesus' death for us by our behavior, by our good deeds, by our morality, that we have to earn grace so that we don't fall into abusing grace. No, there's no kicker. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's what changes us. That's actually what causes us to obey. 
My mentor, Steve Brown, I I quote this often, um, but he says, the only people who ever get better are the people who know if they don't get any better, God will still love them. There is no condemnation. This week, I thought a lot about that woman who was caught in adultery um, that the religious leaders brought before Jesus to try to trap Jesus because her sin at that, at that time was punishable by death. And they wanted to see, is he going to uphold God's law in this situation? If you remember, Jesus bends down on the ground. He starts writing something. And then he looks up at these religious leaders and he says, whichever of you is without sin, cast the first stone. And then we're told that one by one, starting with the older ones, uh, they begin to drop their stones and walk away. Till it's just Jesus and this woman left. This woman has been humiliated publicly, Um, and he sees her there and and he looks at her and he says, has anyone condemned you? She says, no, no one, sir. And then he looks at her and he says, then nor do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. He tells her to go and be obedient. But it's the words of no condemnation that become the why to her obedience. That is the correct why. It's the only why that can set us free. If you have been obeying God, if you've been doing religious stuff in hopes that God will be pleased with you and hopes that, that God won't reject you, or if you've been doing bad things and you think, oh no, there's no way God would love me, you've got it wrong. There is now no condemnation. If you heard Jesus say that to you, and he is saying that to you, from this day forward, if, if, he, if he looked at you and he said, from this day forward, I will not condemn you. You never have to fear condemnation from me. The world may condemn you. Your spouse may condemn you. Your friends may condemn you. May, maybe even your church will condemn you. But in me, you're safe. I never will. What would you do? Seriously, think about what would you do? If Jesus looked you in the eyes and said, I will never condemn you, what would be your next right step? What would you do? There's a scene in the Quentin Tarantino movie, Django Unchained, uh, that really had a profound effect on me. Um, and I'm not recommending the movie. Um, it's very violent. And, uh, but um, there's a scene with Django, who is a slave, played by Jamie Foxx, and, um, and a German dentist turned uh, bounty hunter by the name of Dr. King Schultz, played by Christopher Waltz. And, uh, and, and Dr. Schultz has... Uh, um, he, has, he has acquired Django after he killed Django's owner. And he tells Django, he says, all right, if you'll help me catch these guys that I'm after, the Brittle Brothers, I'll set you free. Because he didn't really care about, you know, he didn't care about it. He just, he just wanted help, uh, you know, ca- capturing these guys. So they capture these guys so Django's free. And, and they're sitting around the campfire and Django is talking about what he's going to do with his freedom. And he begins to say, you know, that he's going to go back down into the deep south. And he's going to go to the plantation where his wife is and he's going to buy her uh, from the plantation owner. And, and the bounty hunter thinks this is a terrible idea. He thinks it's a fruitless idea because he knows if Django goes back down into the south, he's going to end up dead. That it's, 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 it's a useless mission. And Django says to him, why do you care what happens to me? And Dr. King Schultz says, I've never given anyone their freedom before. And now that I have, I feel responsible for you. 
In that moment, this bounty hunter makes a pledge to Django that if that's what he wants to do, he's going to go with them. He's going to stay with them the whole time. And in fact, uh, Dr. King Schultz ends up giving his life in the process of trying to rescue Django's wife. Jesus came to set you free. And in doing so, he has taken responsibility for you. That's what I want my buddy to know. I want my buddy to know that not only does, does Jesus set him free, but he's taking responsibility for him. He's taking responsibility for him in his struggle, that in his struggle, he will never leave him nor forsake him, that he will never condemn him. He's free. And because of that, that means Jesus is with him in it till the end, until the righteousness for which we hope for is fully realized and seen. And what a glorious day that will be for my friend, for all of us. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So now, now what do you want to do? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you um, for, for Jesus. I thank you for sending your son on a mission uh, to set us free. I thank you for, uh, in saving us, taking responsibility for us. And Father, it is hard uh, as we struggle in this world. It is hard when we struggle with the things that our heart wants that are not of you, that are, that, are, uh, that are destructive, that are enslaving, but that we can't seem to shake. But Father, we thank you that your spirit constantly calls out what is most true. Give us ears uh, to hear your spirit. Help us reject the spirit of fear, the, the spirit that condemns, but that we would hear your kind whisper that's calling us to what you always had in mind when you thought us up. Father, I pray for each one of us. I don't know where each one of us are in living out our freedom, uh, but you do. I don't know how loudly we've heard the trumpet, uh, but Father, would you, uh, would you, would you blow that trumpet in a way uh, that changes our hearts? And we pray this all in, in the one who came to save us. In Jesus' name, amen.